Good morning. Excited and grateful for the opportunity and privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. Our text today is going to be in Numbers 14. Would you turn there with me in your Bible? If you're using the one in the chair, it's on page 122. Just as a reminder, the book of Numbers is telling us the story of what happens to the nation of Israel after they leave Egypt. So it picks up after God has sent the plagues upon Egypt, after God has brought them out of Egypt and away from Pharaoh, after God has parted the Red Sea and he's brought them to Mount Sinai where he gives the Ten Commandments, he gives part of his law to Israel where he speaks to Moses on the mountain. That's where Numbers picks up. And it's called the book of Numbers because it starts in chapter 1 and 2 with a census of all the people of Israel. It takes a census of all the men who are old enough to go into battle. And at the end, in Numbers chapter 26, there's another census, 40 years later, of all the men who are able to go to battle. These censuses are taking place because Israel is preparing to go and conquer the promised land that God has given them. As we pick up our story today in Numbers 14, what's just happened at the end of chapter 13 is 12 spies have come back from the land of Canaan, and they've given a report. Two of the spies have told the people that the land is good and that God will give it to them and they need to go take it. But 10 of the spies have said that the people there are too great and mighty and that they cannot conquer them. So we're going to pick up our story right here at the beginning of chapter 14 as the people are starting to get terrified hearing this report from the spies. Let's read in Uh, Numbers 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed for them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We ask now that you move and work in us by your spirit. Remove our sinful thoughts. Give us clarity. Convict us where we need to be convicted. We ask that you do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you probably know this, but there are some really wild, almost absurd stories out there about churches with problems and division going on in them. Recently I read about one church that had so much chaos and fighting and just really hatred going on within its membership 
uh, that it eventually split into two smaller churches. You want to know what the final straw was that caused this church to give up and split? A few of the members who didn't like some other members, they hid the vacuum cleaner and didn't tell them where it was. I wish I was joking, but I'm not. Or perhaps you've heard the story of the church with the street fighting deacons. In this church, uh, one deacon had been anonymously criticized, and he thought it was a second deacon who had sent this letter and criticized him anonymously. So he confronted the other deacon. He accused him of this. And the two deacons decided, you know what? We'll go settle things outside in the parking lot. Again, I wish I was joking, but I'm not. Perhaps what might even top both of them is there's churches where people have left the church and gone to another one after long, bitter disputes about what type of coffee they're serving in the lobby and how dark the roast is. Whether it's these really absurd examples or some of the ones we know more commonly from everyday life, the church is not always what it's meant to be. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that the church is one body with many members, fully united. Yet we see churches like this that are divided and in schism. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter that the church is built by him and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yet we see churches that seem powerless, weak, unable to carry out God's will as they're told and expected to. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that the church is the perfect, flawless bride of Christ. Yet we might look at churches and see division, imperfection, flaws. Instead of building Christ's kingdom as we're supposed to, sometimes churches are crumbling because of a vacuum cleaner. Now, some of this should just be expected this side of heaven. We know as a church, just like we are here, any community of imperfect people coming together is bound to have some problems. Things are bound to get messy. But it's also important that we focus on what Christ has called us to, that we try to do what we're expected to as laid out in Scripture and as laid out by our congregational voice and vote and mission, that we are doing what God expects us to do. As we go through this passage today, Numbers 14, we're going to focus on how we can do this. What are some ways that we can make sure, as a congregation, we're focused on the right things that God wants us to do? In other words, we're going to learn from this passage a couple ways we can be the church God has called us to be instead of a church where we're fighting out in the parking lot. As we go through Numbers 14 today, we're going to see three main things. We're going to see that we need to properly trust, we need to properly obey, and we need to properly unite. So we're going to go through those three one at a time. We'll start with the need to properly trust. In this passage that we read in Numbers 14, there's lots of ways that we can see Israel failing to properly trust. To start with, there's this lack of trust in the right people. Did you notice that right away, they raise a loud cry and they weep? They're trusting the report of the ten spies who are giving them bad information that's not in line with what God has said as opposed to trusting the report of Caleb and Joshua, the two spies who are encouraging them and giving them the accurate report, giving them the report that's in line with what God has promised. So when they hear the ten spies, their response is to listen to them and heed their advice and weep and cry and mourn and complain. But when they hear the two spies with the accurate report, their response is to ignore it. Beyond just not trusting Caleb and Joshua, though, you'll also notice they don't trust Moses and Aaron. Right away in verse 2, it tells us that the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. If you look at verse 3, their response is to complain about what Moses and Aaron have done. If you look at verse 4, they say that they're deciding to choose another leader in place of Moses and Aaron, and that they want to go back to Egypt and be in slavery. 
So not only are they showing a lack of trust in Moses and Aaron, but also in Caleb and Joshua. They're not trusting properly the right people that are speaking what God has said. They're not trusting the right godly voices. Beyond this issue of not trusting the right people, though, you'll notice that they're not properly trusting God, and that's their fundamental issue. Well, verse 2 says that they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Did you notice that their grumbling and complaining is ultimately against God? They complain that he brought them out of Egypt, even though he rescued them from slavery. They complain that he's brought them there just just to fall and die by the sword in battle with the people of Canaan. All this is in spite of God's promises. All this is in spite of God's power. Consider the promises God had made already to the people of Israel. All the way back with Abram, hundreds of years before, God said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And Abram's response was to build an altar to the Lord and worship him. This was hundreds of years before. God had already promised them that they would have this land. Yet the people's response is to complain is to grumble. The people twice in verse 2 and verse 4, they say they would prefer to be either dead in Egypt or in slavery in Egypt than rather be where God is leading them to this land. This promise was not just given hundreds of years before to Abram, though. If you remember, it's been repeated several times. For example, in Exodus 6-8, God repeats the promise to Moses while they're still about to leave Egypt. In Exodus 6, 8, he says, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. Once they're out of Egypt and they're in Sinai, the promise gets repeated again. In Leviticus 20, God repeats it. He says, Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. These are just three of many verses where God repeats this promise. And yet still the people do not believe. As Caleb and Joshua reiterate that God has made this promise, the people do not believe. Instead, they give in to fear. You'll also notice that part of their problem is this lack of trust, not only in God's promise, but also in his power, his ability to carry out what he has promised. This is really striking, but you'll notice in verse 9, Caleb and Joshua say the reason why they should go take the land is because God is with them and God has removed the protection from Canaan. So there's no need to fear them. Yet the people's response is still to fear the people of Canaan. So the community of Israel is having greater fear in the power of the Canaanites than their trust in the power of God. That's really striking when you think about it. They've just been led out of Egypt. God sent the plagues, all ten, God led them out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea for them, then closed the Red Sea back up to swallow the Egyptian army that was chasing them. They've seen water come out of a rock. They've seen manna, bread, quail come from heaven. They've seen God do immense, amazing things for them, and yet they still do not trust his power. They give in to fear of the power of the Canaanites, despite what God has said. I think it's really easy for us to read this story, see Israel complaining, see them grumbling, and think something along the lines of, excuse my language, but wow, these guys are idiots. You know, that might be our first response. How are they so foolish? They should know what God has done for them and they don't believe. Well, it might be true that the Israelites are foolish in this story. I don't think that's what our first response should be. I think first we should examine ourselves. If you really think about it, are you and I any better than the Israelites here? How often do we fully trust God's power? 
How often do we fully rely on him? How often do we remember everything he's done and everything we know? If you're like me, often you probably try to do things on your own power. Often you might try to do things on your own power as much as you can, and then when things get bad, okay, okay, God, I need your help now. And that's the time when you depend on him rather than trusting God's power throughout all your life. If we're really honest, we're no better than the Israelites in this story. In fact, we might even be worse. Think about the fact that we have the stories here in Scripture of everything that they saw, but we also have everything that's happened after them. We have the whole council of Scripture. We know what has happened to millions of God's people, and we know what Christ has done for us, how he has conquered sin, he's overcame death and freed us, causing us to be reborn. We have the stories of what God's done all throughout history in the 2,000 years since the Bible was written as well. We have the testimonies of all God's people who've gone before us. We know ways God's worked in our own lives and in those around us. And yet we still don't always properly trust God. So I think the first thing we need to do today is examine our own hearts, reflect. Are we properly trusting God the way he deserves? Do you fully trust God and his power? Do you believe what he's promised? Do you believe he can carry it out and he will carry it out? Do you depend on him and his, your, and his power for your life? Or do your thoughts and your actions say otherwise? In our life as a church, do we properly depend on God and his power? For all this, we need God's help, we need the Spirit, and we need to properly trust him. Second, beyond just having proper trust, we also need to properly obey Now in our story, it's very easy to see the Israelites not obeying. And there's a connection here. If you don't have the proper trust, it's hard to have the second step and actually obey. But we can learn a lot of lessons here for obedience from this passage. It makes sense that in verse 9, Caleb and Joshua are pleading and begging the congregation of Israel, begging them not to rebel against the Lord and to obey what he's commanded. Notice how stark in this passage the consequences are for disobeying. If you look at 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12, God's initial response is righteous anger, indignation at Israel. He says, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have done for them, or done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. This is God's proper and righteous response to what the Israelites are doing is that he ought to destroy them. He ought to disinherit them. They will no longer be his people and he'll start the process all over again with Moses. Now Moses intercedes for the people in verses 13 to 19, but there's still going to be punishments for Israel's disobedience. God doesn't destroy them, but he still punishes. Skip ahead with me just to verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. So God doesn't ultimately strike down Israel and disinherit them as they deserve. He has mercy, but there's still the punishment and consequence where they're cursed now to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and only two men of that generation Caleb and Joshua, who faithfully reported, only two men of that generation will enter the promised land. Everyone else will die in the 40 years before they enter the promised land. I've got a a little map here. It might be a little blurry, but this is 
the basic journey of Israel throughout the story of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they started over here in Egypt, as you know, they got brought out by God. At Sinai is where they're camped for a while. That's where Moses goes up the mountain to talk with God, and they, he receives the Ten Commandments. He receives much of the law. In the beginning of Numbers, the people have now journeyed towards Kadesh, which is right on the border of the land of Canaan that they're supposed to conquer. land of Canaan's right here. So they've journeyed to Kadesh. They're waiting there, and the spies go into Canaan. Now they're cursed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, so they start in Kadesh. You want to know where they end up 40 years later? Right there in Moab, just on the other side of the Canaan border. So they are wandering here for 40 years, not really going anywhere, just outside the promised land. So close, you can see it, you can taste it almost, you know, but they're stuck there, constantly reflecting on their sin, their disobedience, and the consequence. Imagine that you are trying to get into, let's say, the state of Wisconsin, but you're stuck in Illinois for 40 years, right here at the border, and you can't get into Wisconsin. That's kind of what this is like. They're stuck right outside the promised land, but they can't get in. Now, when we hear wilderness, we might also, at least I picture trees, woods, you know, maybe some rivers and streams going through. But this is a lot more what this land looks like today. It looks a lot more like harsh desert, kind of miserable place to be, stuck wandering for 40 years. This is some of their consequence. And only two men will enter the land. I like making charts, so I made a little chart here if you want to see it. At the beginning of Numbers 1, there's 603,550 men who are able to go to war, and only two of them get to see the promised land. I think this is a pretty generous sliver. We shouldn't even be able to see it, right? Only two get to enter the promised land. There are really serious consequences for disobedience to God. Another way to think about this, imagine that your mom or dad tells you to do something. How do you respond? Generally, I would obey, but I know I didn't always obey. Sometimes I would rebel against their authority. Maybe imagine that a beloved teacher or coach or professor tells you to do something. You're probably a little more likely to respond, right? Imagine if your favorite athlete or your celebrity or someone you really admire were to come in here and tell you what to do. You'd probably be a little more likely to listen. Imagine if a U.S. general or a president or some great figure in the world came in and told you what to do. I know I would listen and obey what they're doing. Now, God is higher and has infinitely more authority than all these people, and yet we often don't obey him. Let us consider how we need to obey him. A second thing to notice here about properly obeying, obedience needs to be on God's terms and in God's timing. If you skip ahead with me, just to verse 39, God has told Moses the consequences for what's going to happen to Israel. He's told them that they'll be cursed to wander, for 40 years, and that none of the men except Caleb and Joshua will see the land. In verse 39, it says, When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. They rose early in the morning, went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies." So what are the people doing here? This makes me think, uh, just the other night, I was coaching a soccer practice for the team of 10-year-old boys I coach. And th this is an often occurrence, a common occurrence, but one boy was disrupting and distracting while I'm trying to explain things. So I gave him a couple warnings, you know. Hey, Billy, you got to be quiet. I'm trying to explain. Billy, you're distracting everyone. Okay, Billy, if you can't listen, you're going to have to sit out so everyone else can play. 
And, you know, that kind of works for a while, but he keeps doing it. So I eventually get to the point where I'm going to give him the consequence. Billy, that's it. Go sit out. You've got to sit out for three minutes. What's his reaction? You can probably picture. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll listen. I'll listen. Now, is that obedience? He didn't listen over and over again the first time. To want to obey just when there's a consequence suddenly enforced on you is not obedience. That's what the Israelites are doing here. They're disobeying God, they hear the consequences, and suddenly they want to obey God and do what he said in the first place. But now Moses has said that God is not with them, so their obedience is not really obedience. They're not obeying when they were supposed to. You can probably guess what happens, but it tells us there in verse 43 to 45 that they are soundly defeated by the people that they go battle. They did not go and obey God as they should. You might be wondering, what does this Israelite story have to do with us? How does this teach us to obey? After all, God hasn't commanded us to go conquer the land of Canaan and drive people out. We don't have a leader like Moses who's up on Mount Sinai hearing directly from God. But I I think this still teaches us a lot about what we should do. After all, our God is still the same God. He still deserves our utmost trust and obedience. He still has all authority. We just have different commands that are given to us. We can find these clearly in Scripture, such as commands to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world, to make disciples of all nations, commands for how we relate to others in the church, commands for how we relate to our families, commands for how we relate to the world. Countless commands, we have these. In our congregation, we also have lots of godly people who are listening and being led by the Spirit, and God will prompt us on what we need to do. Collectively, we're trying to follow where God leads us and obey his commands. You may have heard over the next few months that Pastor Tim's going to be starting a series called No Spectators, where he's talking about the church. In that series, he's going to go through a lot of these passages in Scripture about what are the commands we need to follow as a church. What are the things we need to do? How should we act? What should define and describe us? So perhaps your way of being obedient to God's calling for us as a church is just to commit yourself to coming more regularly, making sure you're here every Sunday as we study what God wants us to do. Maybe it's to come during first hour as we keep diving deeper through 1 Timothy or through the nine marks of a healthy church class on what God wants us to do. How can we obey God's commands? Once again, I just want to stress that we should not jump to a a place of arrogance or pride when we read this story. We should jump to a place of humility. We are no better than these Israelites. How often do we rebel against God? How often in our sin do we distrust, rebel against his authority, and try to make ourselves the authority. Let's take care to be humble and make sure we commit to steadfast obedience to God. As the people of God, we need to properly trust. We need to properly obey. And the third part we're going to talk about from this story is the need to properly unite. We said earlier in 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is meant to be one body united in Christ. I want to take another look at our text in Numbers today and see what it teaches us about unity. It's very easy to see in this passage that there's not unity happening in the congregation. And the closest they come to being unified is when the majority of the congregation is doing the wrong thing. First, we can notice that even the spies themselves, the 12 spies, are not united. Ten of the 12 give the wrong report and two disagree with them giving the right report with the proper position under God. Then again, the assembly is divided where they accuse Moses and Aaron. They complain against him. And Moses and Aaron end up falling on their faces before the assembly. 
You'll notice this goes beyond grumbling or complaining. When I hear the word grumble, I might think, you know, someone's just muttering something under their breath, like, oh man, how could that guy do that, you know? This is much more powerful than that. This is strong, powerful disunity in the, in the congregation of Israel here. Did you notice that in verse 9 and verse 10, after Caleb and Joshua make this appeal, in verse 10, the congregation is about to stone Caleb, Joshua, Moses, and Aaron. Now, I've been in a lot of conflicts and disagreements in my life, but never, even in the most serious one, have I reached a point where I want to you know, grab someone by the throat or I want to grab a stone and kill him. This is very sharp, powerful disunity. They're disagreeing so much about what God has said and what the right direction for them to go is. Later on in verse 39 to 45, you see this disunity continue. Like we mentioned in verse 39 to 45, the people still go to battle even when Moses tells them not to. They're not listening to their leader still. In each of these ways, the division and the disunity in the congregation is having huge consequences and it never is ending well for anybody. So what does this mean for us as a church? Do we read this passage and we say, if you disagree with your leader, you've caused division and you're sinning? I think there's a nugget of truth in that, but I wouldn't go that far. First, a leader in our church, whether it's Pastor Tim or Craig or one of the elders or deacons or whoever, they only have authority insofar as they're under the authority of God. So if a leader says something or does something that steps out of that authority and contradicts what God has taught us, they don't have authority and it's not, uh, it's not good to follow what they're saying. We need to follow what's biblical and proper as God teaches us. But second, it's also important to recognize that you can disagree with someone in the church and not create conflict, disunity, division. There's no way in, in, a, in our church this size that everyone is in unanimous agreement on every single doctrine, every single issue, every single decision about what we should do, every single line in the budget, all these things. There's no way as a church we're in unanimous, unanimous agreement, but we are one. We are committed to each other and being united and not creating division. As an example, let's just pretend that Pastor Craig or Pastor Tim said something in a sermon that you think is really wrong and it's serious. Boy, they messed up. What's the right thing to do? Should you just hold it in and never say anything and decide, oh, they're wrong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this church and go somewhere else. Should you send them a scathing email? Say, you're wrong. How could you? I demand you resign from church. I don't think so. Should you talk behind their back? Should you go grumble, complain? Tell others how horrible they are. No. Or should you go talk to them and approach them lovingly? Ask to get understanding, to talk with them and understand what's going on and maybe they'll reach even agreement. Hope you see there are ways to disagree with someone else in the church without creating division and disunity. There's certainly ways to disagree with people in, in the church and in our body without wanting to stone them. As a church, we want to make sure we're united through our faith in Christ. We have a common faith, a common purpose, a common mission, a common Lord. This unity will not mean we're in unanimous agreement all the time, but it does mean we're fully committed to loving and serving one another, putting the good of others above ourselves. There's a second lesson about unity in this passage that we can notice, and that doesn't come from the division in the people, but it comes from Moses' response. First and foremost, in verse 5, you notice his response is to fall on his face before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. I was thinking about this. I was trying to put myself in Moses' shoes. 
So you've led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. God's been talking to you, all this stuff. And then the people are complaining and grumbling against you and they want to replace you with another leader. They want to stone you. What would your response be? I think if I was in his position, mine would be something along the lines of, are you kidding? I led you out of Egypt. God's been talking to me. God's been telling me what we need to do. I've been your leader. I've been a good and faithful leader. I've been here for your good. And now you want to get rid of me? How dare you? I think that would be kind of my response. And that would be justified. But Moses' response, rather than getting defensive or even counterattacking the people, his response is to fall humbly on his face. It shows that he cares for them. It also shows how heartbroken and grieved he is by their sin. He's falling on his face before them and before God. But beyond just his first reaction here in verse 5, we can also learn a lot about unity from his reaction in verse 13 to 19. So again, in verse 11 and 12, God has said he's going to disinherit the people of Israel, strike them down, and he's going to start all over again and make a great nation out of Moses. Again, if I'm putting myself in Moses' shoes, I might be thinking, okay, that sounds pretty good. You know? But that's not Moses' response. In verse 13 to 19, Moses pleads and intercedes for the people. His plea is focused on God's glory and on the good of the Israelites. Can you imagine that? Moses is pleading to save the life of the people who are just about to kill him. How remarkable. He's so concerned, not for himself, but ultimately for God's glory and the good of others. I think that teaches us a lot about what we need to be as a church. Even when we're harmed or wounded by others, even when we're upset by others, hopefully others aren't trying to stone us, but even when we're harmed by others, we need to concern ourselves first and foremost with God's glory and then with the good of others rather than our own pride, our own rights, or our own esteem. And this is no more than what Christ has done for us. Here Moses is pleading to save the life of people who are about to kill him. What did Christ do for us? He came down and he saved us, the people who were responsible for his death. He came even to save the people who mocked him and beat him and crucified him as he was sacrificing himself for them. If Christ could do this for you and me, how can we not be united to our brothers and sisters in Christ? If he could forgive such great wrongs we've done, how can we not forgive the wrongs others in the body have done? If he can unite all of us in himself, how could we allow division and disunity? So think for a moment about our church. What are some things we need to do to remain unified? Maybe some things we've already mentioned. Maybe you just need to commit to being here more often and growing together under the word and, and under the teaching of it. Maybe you need to commit to playing a greater part or a greater role in the church, stepping up and serving the way you're supposed to. Maybe you need to commit to being a more faithful attender in your life group. Maybe we need to commit to growing as one body and getting to go deeper and know others in the body more. Or perhaps there's someone you need to stop gossiping about and grumbling and complaining behind their back. Perhaps there's someone in the congregation who's wounded or hurt you. You need to forgive them. Perhaps you need to let go of the bitterness or the resentment or the jealousy or the envy that you have towards someone else. Perhaps there's sins you need to confess. Or maybe there's someone you need to approach and have a conversation with. Let's consider what we need to do. We all have a part to play in being united. Every single one of us, one body but many members, we need to be united. So we've talked today about the need to properly trust, 
the need we have to properly obey, the need we have to properly unite. We've seen that in Numbers 14. We've seen how Israel failed in many of these ways. We've also seen the successes of Moses and Caleb and Joshua. We've seen how disobedience to God can never lead to anything good. We've seen the need to give him our full devotion, our full obedience, our full love and trust. As we leave today, I invite you all to consider what we can do to grow both individually and grow together in these ways. Instead of being a church with costly disputes about coffee beans, may we be a church that's focused entirely on obeying God's commands. Instead of hiding the vacuum cleaner from each other, may we be united with a deep trust for God. And instead of having deacons fighting in the parking lot, may we be united firmly in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you alone deserve all glory and honor and power. There's no one greater than you. We thank you that we are not alone in faith, but we are part of a community. We are part of one body. We thank you for your word, how you speak to us so clearly in it. We ask that you help us today and this week to grow in our walk with you and to grow together. Cause us to love you more, to trust you more, and to be more devoted to you. Amen.